0: Need custom-made images, videos, and more for your next campaign? Discover Shutterstock Studios, offering end-to-end creative solutions and content for major brands and agencies. With most productions worldwide on pause, Shutterstock Studios is your secret weapon for getting the content you need. Learn more at shutterstock.com/studios.
1: Welcome to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Sandler. Together, we'll discover the latest and greatest in experiential retail, marketing, and pop-ups. That means fashion, retail, restaurants, art, and entertainment. You're going to hear about new business models, creative strategies, and the latest technologies available that make pop-up sales and marketing effective for brands. Deanne Campbell is the Vice President of Retail Strategy and Insights at Harbor Retail and a 20-year veteran in the retail industry. She's leading the shift beyond converged commerce to harmonic retail, where online and offline experiences interact and enrich one another to create a living, harmonized brand experience. That's something that I'm looking forward to hearing more about and talking about with this architect and trend spotter. Hi, Deanne. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm great. Good, good. It's uh, kind of wonderful to be in a new year and uh, still at the beginning. I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it. Thank goodness we made it through a dark year and uh, it's, it's a new day. Yeah. Are you are you sensing that your clients share a sense of that? You know, what is the overall feeling happening on your end there?
0: Oh, it is. It's incredible. All last year, it was almost like watching everyone go through the five stages of grief and kind of arriving at a stoic acceptance by December. But uh, almost from day one in January, there's been this this tentative optimism that's growing. And I think more than optimism, it's customer or, or our clients realizing that life goes on and from now on, things are going to be uncertain. There's going to be uh, unforeseen events. And so let's just get over it, figure out how to live with it and move on. So now there's this buzz of activity as people are excited again about trying to figure out how to live with uncertainty (laughs) permanently,
1: yeah, and I'm sure that is changing your approach to this year as opposed to maybe the last couple of years, um, but we'll we'll talk about that as we as we kind of get into our conversation. So, with your background, um, we have an opportunity today to really get into the nuts and bolts of activating pop-ups and temporary and experiential retail. Um, And that's something that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet on the Pop-Up Biz podcast. And I think that it's so important for brands and marketers to really talk through their approach to the design and building of their vision um, that's going to work against an established ROI. And I know that you work on both ends of that with clients. So I'm hoping you can kick off the conversation by talking about how those two things, you know, need to work together.
0: Absolutely. So we base our design work on something we call harmonic retail. And that's really uh, when you think about a website, for example. A website will look and act differently depending on whether you're using a large PC screen or you're viewing it on a mobile screen. You know, same company, same website, but the experience is adjusted so that it's a good experience on those two different sized screens. Well, that's what retail really needs to do today. It needs to become harmonic and have that flexibility and responsiveness to adjust to the client and stay in tune with those, those shoppers at all times through their journey. And that's what we try to inject into everything we design, be it a, a permanent environment or a pop-up or even a
1: vending machine. And so can you just tell us a little more about this sort of interplay? Um, because I know we've, we've talked about how the brick and mortar at this stage you know, in the world is kind of providing a halo effect for what's happening online in terms of e-commerce.
0: That's right. So most customers right now, when uh, they they have access to multiple channels with a retailer, but those channels work simultaneously, they don't really respond or connect to each other or to the customer. So one example is you're standing in a store, you you can open up the store's website and look on the website to see if they have a different color or different size of what you're looking at on the shelf. But you have to really pull that up and um, Uh, check it out yourself. You're going to have to do it manually on the website. But what we really need for that website to do is to interact with the store. And so the experience is always in tune with the customer. And that is really what we're doing to inject um, into our pop-up design.
1: Tell us a little bit more about how that happens. So, in other words, you know, is it a physical modular display solution, you know, that that makes that happen are we talking about technology integration let's get into a little more of the details around that
0: it's all of the above so really this is where the the term harmonic retail kind of came to mind for us is the the different channels are going to look and and act differently customers expect that they're used to that what they but that what they want is familiarity between those channels and having that design, bringing some of the website components into a pop-up store so there's a sense of familiarity and comfort to the shopper when they walk into the pop-up. Oh, this feels like the brand. This feels comfortable. I'm familiar with this. and That really builds trust in the brand, and it also uh, has the added benefit of shortening the time it takes to get to a purchase decision. So that's one aspect of, of bringing familiarity into every channel across pollinating it for lack of a better term Um, so customers don't have to start over from scratch whenever they change channels and um, when it's done right that that flexibility kind of carries over into everything else you have to have the ability to move a location quickly and and put it where the customer is which is which is changing almost daily you know Boise and Austin are the two biggest um, migration cities in the country right now There aren't a lot of retailers who have positioned themselves in in Boise, Idaho, but that's going to be changing very quickly. And um, creating everything inside the pop-up that's modular and flexible and movable so that you can uh, have even store staff quickly reconfigure so that you can personalize that pop-up. Or even a a full-on brick-and-mortar store, personalize it for the community, personalize it for the region that you're in. The seasons. Everything is about creating that that ability to stay in tune with what's going on with your customer at any given moment.
1: Right. So does that you know begin with something like graphics and color and logo and those kinds of look and feel elements as well?
0: Well, it it does. And um, if you look at um, there, there's a company called Sleep Country, and they are a direct to consumer bed brand out in California, and they developed a website and they consciously took graphics from the website and put them into the store, printed them on large wall, large scale wall graphics so that when you walk in the store, there's an instant familiarity between what you saw on the website and what you see in the store. So that that's one example of a very basic way to do it. And then it's really integrating every aspect of what you what you do for design, how you lay out the store, how you design the flow, the journey, using QR codes, um, creating technology opportunities in, throughout the store that really line up well with what goes on to the website. Self-checkout, uh, have it work in a similar way to how you check out in the store, uh, or sorry, online. Being able to order, pick up things in store, the, the method that you use to uh, connect yourself Ikea there there I'll, I'll use Ikea as an example when you go to Ikea to return something you take a QR code with you you scan your QR code you've already done the, the, the return paperwork online you scan your QR code you've got your receipt they they, sh- they have a screen up that tells you when your place in line, uh, when your turn is at Ikea and you can just kind of hang out nearby until your name is called and it's a it's a very organic experience that marries up online and offline really well. So you, you feel comfortable, you feel in control, and you feel like you could also leave the store and do something else if you really wanted to.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example. And, you know, I know there's been some interesting research published and interesting research methodologies, you know, to capture data about how that's working and, and how that kind of feeds into repeat purchases and loyalty. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? The rules have changed
0: for measuring success today. And I don't think anybody has quite figured out what the new rules are going to be. So we're really just kind of riding this this crazy dragon to get to the answer. Uh, But when you look at measuring success in the past, when you were in a store, you would measure sales per square foot. When you were online, you'd measure clicks and and buys. Um, Those measurements really aren't telling you the the whole story anymore. So you need to be able to measure the halo effect of um, brick and mortar on online sales. So brick and mortar on average, will represent a a 37% lift to online sales in the area where you have a store. And even when you close a store, I know uh, for some data around Gap when they were closing a few mall stores a couple years ago, they saw a 9% drop in online sales in the areas where they closed a store. So how do you measure the impact of that and the benefit of that to know, is it worth it to keep this brick and mortar location open just for the halo effect? Or
1: can I achieve that in a different way? So that has to be integrated. That's an amazing statistic. I mean, that speaks so perfectly to what we sort of feel innately about the reason why pop-up and temporary retail is such a core part of the strategy now, not only for established brands who want to appear in other markets, but for digital-first brands. You know, that I think that that's really accepted um, at this point. But, you know, having the statistics is super helpful.
0: No, and it's broader than that as well. So when you look, that's that's the purchasing side. When you look at returns, if you have uh, an online, um, with brick and mortar, the average return rate for products is kind of hovers around 8%-ish, depending on the type of product. For online, that number jumps up to 25%. That's a huge hit to the bottom line because Again, most people expect returns to be free. If I ship it back to you, I don't like it. I'm not paying for that shipping. So there's a there's a hit um, to the retailer for every return, and it's really impacting the profit margins for retailers across the board. In fact, that's one of the drivers for direct-to-consumer businesses trying to gain access to brick and mortar because it drops the return rate. If you can even just, when you order something online, you walk into a store to pick it up, which majority of people prefer to do. Um, If you could even just open that bag or that box and just double check, yep, that's the color I ordered. Yep, that's the size I ordered. Great. That one act alone drops the return rate in half. And and so Mm -hmm. you need brick and mortar to not only generate the online sales lift and the halo effect, but also to drop um, the return rate. And then the third aspect of that is marketing. It costs a lot of money. It costs more to market if you don't have a physical presence. So stores act as a marketing channel that you've already paid for. You're already paying for the, the cost of that store. And so the marketing you're getting out of that store is free. You don't have that if you're online only. So creating pop-ups or even vending machines can help uh, lower that marketing cost as
1: well. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, you know, it offers a physical space to deepen relationships with customers by hosting events and um, meeting with people one-on-one. Yeah, I, I totally agree, obviously. <laughs> but I think that, you know, you, you speak to a very interesting quandary that some of us, you know, multi-brand pop-up curators and um, retail-as-a-service providers are facing, which is, You know, we provide the infrastructure and the platform for uh, brands to showcase and tell their stories and sell for a period of time. And yet, to your point, their sales are being lifted online. So in this financial relationship that we've established, should the retail as a service providers ask for a sales commission on online sales of their brand partners during those pop-up periods? And I think it's something that's kind of being debated out there in the marketplace right now.
0: It is. It is. Or is that part of the rent? And that really comes into a blending, emerging of the um, real estate owners who rent and or lease physical brick and mortar space to, the, to their brands. They don't charge a commission on sales. They just rent you the space. Um, these retailers, the service providers, Instead of paying rent, should they charge you, could, could they exact a percentage of sales? But would it be sales of anything online or would it be just sales that took place um, directly related to their store? And then how would they measure that? That's really the challenge that needs to be solved for. is If I'm uh Birds, for example, and I want to put my shoes in a retail as a service store, I have a few of my own locations, but I mostly sell online. Am I going to give them a piece of everything, or am I just going to give them a piece of what I put into a neighborhood goods or a show field? And how do I figure out exactly what that piece is, knowing that some of my sales are coming from the halo effect of someone who saw the shoe in a in a, in a neighborhood goods or show field, but didn't actually buy it there. And so the key to that is data analytics, and you have to be able to tie analytics to the shoppers, so you have a single view of the shopper, so you know what they did, and you can say, Well, these sales came from a shopper that walked into a, a show field, so I'm going to give them a percentage of that, that number. Sale. Of,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah,
0: but that's a very challenging equation. There's a lot of uh, negotiation, and what if the brand becomes big, oh, you know, it turns into a Warby Parker? When do you? when do you stop getting your cut? <laughs> and, uh, but it's there. So it's, again, something that hasn't been solved for yet, but that's really the next big thing that's going to have to be negotiated on the direct-to-consumer side.
1: I agree. And, and there are three or four models being tested right now in the marketplace. You know, my approach is more of a of a collective approach where we're trying to cover the costs of the infrastructure uh, and the build out with uh, relatively low fees to the participating brands and then all of us earning our revenue on a percentage of sales. But at this point it's been limited to the sales during the brick and mortar in the brick and mortar space. But I, I, I do understand why some of the other retail as a service players are really considering the sales that are happening online during that period um, when they're showcasing a brand in a physical space. It's really interesting. Um, Yes. And, I'm also just curious, when you're working through all of these issues with clients, you know, who typically gets involved on the brand end, on the client end in these discussions? Who do you typically work with?
0: We typically like to work with um, a mixture of people. It really doesn't, it, the, the days of just dealing with one department are over, both in, internally for us, we always bring a cross-functional team to the table But also on the client side, you you get the most progress in the shortest amount of time if you can have access to a decision maker in marketing, a decision maker on the brand side, a decision maker if they have a design team of their own, then someone on that side, and most importantly, a decision maker in IT. So those, those groups need to come together and all agree. And so that's why we've become very good marriage counselors to try to help elicit <laughs> that decision of book company.
1: Yes, I hope all the brands out there heard that. I agree, and I think it's very important that brands come to the table you know, with their whole team represented or at least their stakeholder concerns very clear because, as you said, it affects every aspect of their business. And I also think that brands should come to the table with a sense of what can they afford to spend So, you know, if they, if their margins are such that they, they know they can put 20% or 25% against this endeavor, whether that's in a sales commission or in rent, you know, then they can come into this feeling really good about it, not being worried. And, you know, their partners on the other side make their ROI work as well. Well, and the other aspect
0: of it too is, is as you probably know, you have to help them help themselves with financing. And so when you think about uh, like a, a typical mall developer, for example, they usually have an anchor tenant or two lined up before they go to the bank to ask for the loan to build the mall. And having those anchor tenants kind of gives the bank a little bit of reassurance that, okay, you're going to do okay, you're going to generate sales. Well, of course that's all changed. But it's also on the re- retail as a service provider and the pop-ups and the brands trying to build their own uh, their own access to brick and mortar is we we have to help them figure out how to best position the offering to pay for it. And this is more important than ever because of these new accounting standards that are coming online where um, Leases and things like that are considered capital that you have to declare up front. Right now, it's if you're a publicly traded company only. But next year, that's going to start to hit the private companies as well. So how do we, how do we figure out when it comes to a pop-up? And that's one of the things that we have to do as well is sit down and roll up our sleeves. How much of this can we turn into furniture, something that qualifies as furniture, so that you can um, get taxed at a lower level? And and not have to hit the books in a way that that hurts your bottom line to potential investors, um, or shareholders, or even just uh, if you're a private company, your own uh, your, your own team. So that's something that we're having to get a lot more involved in as well. And it's something fairly new. In the, in the past, clients would come to you, they'd have their money figured out, and they would just give you the project, and you take it from a you I know mean, take it the rest of the way from a traditional angle and now it's you have no idea what you're going to have to help them solve for and it could be every anything and everything and i'm sure you're encountering countering that in states
1: yeah but i also think it it's clear that you know the industry has arrived you know it's being recognized for the impact that it's having on the sector it's mm-hmm. part of growing up it's part of evolving and growing up absolutely So I'd love to hear uh, about some more specific examples of solutions that you've come up with for clients and the different types of executions that you've been involved in. I know we've talked about temporary storefronts and some mobile activations, and I think people are always interested to hear about solutions and maybe an idea of some of the cost, if you can share some of that, or when things went well and when things maybe didn't. Sure. were, sure. One interesting one that I worked on a few years ago was for Cirque
0: du Soleil, believe it or not. Um, The Cirque du Soleil headquarters came to us. um, This was before their owner went to space. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, they had a problem with their traveling tent shows. Their retail sales were not very good. And it was they they couldn't figure out why people love our brand, but and they they love our stores, but they're not buying very much out of our tent shows. So we analyzed the issue, figured out what was going on, and we realized that when you are um, going to a, a Cirque du Soleil show, you, you walk in, you sit down, and you are entertained and immersed in this magical experience. And then an intermission comes, and you walk out, and it's a very unmagical. <laughs> store environment with asphalt (laughs) floors because it's set up in a parking lot and it's just a bunch of ugly um, shelving that they've pulled out of a box and the box is there beside it and they've thrown a bunch of stuff in it. Um, And it really disconnects you from the magic of what you've just experienced and it's a letdown. And so we redesigned the, the store experience for the tent and we made it as magical as possible. We designed fixtures that look like palm trees and um, all kinds of uh, amazing things. And we, we figured out how to bring lighting into the fixture and how to bring technology into the fixture so that it would, um, it would be more like a real store, but, but include some of that magic of Cirque. And as a result, almost from day one, their sales shot up 30%. And so now it's become their standard. And, um, you know, the, the challenges to us, it was a, an expensive store to build, but that was because of the executional specifics where we had the strictest weight requirements I have ever encountered because it was going to be traveling by multiple methods, you know, going on a shipping, uh, a ship, going on a plane, going on a train, going on a, a donkey or a camel in some respects. <laughs> it needed so a passport. 40 different countries. Exactly. No, you know, we couldn't have, uh, we had to have a a complete universal electrical capability because again, 40 different countries and we couldn't use specialty tools. It had to be just a basic hammer and a wrench that every country would have. And things had to go together intuitively without instructions because hundreds of different workers with different languages and so that, that made it a very expensive endeavor, but I, they, they really received, achieved their ROI within two years because of the sales list.
1: That's amazing. I mean, I feel like if you could figure that out, you could probably do anything. <laughs> it really does. It, it was uh,
0: a. Uh, and it, meetings, of course, with them at their headquarters in Montreal were fascinating because they, they've arranged their boardroom with a big window overlooking the um, practice zone. So you'd be talking to the. The head of the company, or the head of finance, or uh, their their head of marketing, and every now and then somebody would just sail through the air in the background.
1: <laughs> I have heard stories about people who have had meetings there, and it sounds like just an incredible experience. Just just being on the campus—that's very cool. But it's a great example of the of the need for a modular solution that almost anyone can activate. Um,
0: one that we're working on currently is um, I, I'm. I can't mention the name specifically, but it's a pop-up store uh, slash temporary store for uh, a large campground chain. And so it's really, there are a lot of campgrounds across the country that have people who come and camp there for the season or camp for a longer period of time or even a weekend. And everybody needs to buy something when they're camping, whether it's to run in and get. It's kind of like a convenience store aspect. But um, The canteen. Exactly, a canteen, but, but also, you know, I forgot my flip-flops, I need a new towel, I, I just want to browse. And so we took a hard look at what, um, what campers would want on these sites. And it turns out that um, they are time-rich and cash-rich, and they want to be entertained. So making the stores a little more experiential, bringing in um, uh, a way, having a way to bring in local artisan products. So they can buy something from this area that was very important to them and it's never been addressed before. So we're really integrating all of that into the design of these pop ups that can work as um, short term stores until a permanent one can be built where it makes sense or even just acting as a temporary store for the season and we take it away when the winter comes. And, and then extending it beyond that to um, I want to set up at Walmart for two weeks for a promotion for this RV company or something like that um, so creating creating that hyper flexibility that gives um, gives us the ability to really localize the design and the product mix for that that campground that is such a cool idea it really is and the other thing that we're um, we're realizing as we're getting into this is If you are deciding to go camping, you may decide to drive into the wee hours in the morning and you'll arrive at campground at one o'clock in the morning, but your air conditioner doesn't work and you just need this stupid little part. It breaks all the time. Well, what if you had a vending machine that you could go to at one or two in the morning, even if the store's not open and just buy that that part, figure out what the most common um, things that break Mm -hmm. on an RV are and have those available. So it really expanding that, that pop-up experience to be a lot more um, multifunctional.
1: Yeah. You know, it, I've always thought when you visit a national park or any of these kinds of sites, they're missing the retail opportunity. I can't help myself. You know, I walk around thinking there should be a towel. There should be a, you know, something other than just a sun visor and sunscreen. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, Definitely.
0: So, um, yeah, so those, those are a couple of things, you know, we're working on um, a beauty uh, pop-up that can be used to test out different locations, like, uh, you know, testing out whether this this beauty brand would be a good compatible partner for a grocery retailer, for example, or a drugstore uh, to see how it works in those environments. So um, it's really a whole new world right now with, in terms of partnerships, in terms of brands trying to gain um, access to brick and mortar in very creative ways and, and trying to take over their own destiny a little bit more.
1: That really has me thinking a lot about how do you do that in a contact-less or a more contact-less environment going forward? That's right. And um, that's one of the
0: things. So last year, a lot of our clients put projects on hold, as, as everybody did, just because they didn't know where, where things were going and when. Um, And we took that opportunity to kind of start thinking about the 2.0 version and skip over the beta version that we were originally planning to do. Um, And one of the things that kept coming up is voice. How do we get voice integrated into store environments and pop-ups and um, temporary things out in the real world? And the challenge there is you have lots of people, you have a lot of noise, background noise, ambient noise that confuses the voice technology. Uh, but we've been able to, to work beyond that. And I don't know the technical details because I'm not an our tech team, but um, we've been able to figure out how to make voice work in a, in a noisy store environment. So now it's a game changer as far as how a store works. Imagine a pop-up that you walk in and you don't have to touch anything, but you can give voice commands, even if you have your headphones on and do it through your mobile device, it can connect to various experiences around the store. You can go up to a video screen and instead of touching the screen, you can tell it what you wanna see. And, and then it kind of takes the pressure off the analytics. You can back it up with analytics so that you don't just get um, things triggering when someone walks by. But engaging through the voice is a lot more natural feeling for with people and uh, a lot more accurate as well. And, and it gives people that sense of control. Uh, it also is um, brings that familiarity. You do this at home all the time. So doing it out in the real world makes a whole lot of sense.
1: Yeah, I think making an investment in technologies that uh, keep contact to a minimum is very important and very smart for brands and for retailers. And I was thinking about things like you know, activating motion and, and video loops on the merchandising display end of things as well. Well, and you need those things. We, and we do a lot of
0: that, but we also find that, um, you know, we, we, we've done a, a pop-up activation for GE appliances, for example, to showcase their smart appliances and show customers how they work together. Uh, you can really see how they work in the context of your own home. How do they work with a Nest device with, with a sound system? And what we found was analytics will read is this a male or female, uh, approximate age, are they smiling, are they not smiling? And you can use that to to trigger which video makes the most sense to activate for this person. But it's not always right, and it only gets it to a very high level. If you give someone the ability to speak and and command the video a little bit more without touching the screen, um, then suddenly that video experience that that activation loop becomes a lot more relevant to the individual shopper, and they feel almost like um, a, a store employee is there guiding them and advising them. It's not the same, but it's getting much closer to that that personalized experience.
1: Yeah, it's grabbing the customer's attention in this new environment, and then getting to conversion. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and helping customers visualize how these
0: things work in the context of their own life. That's really the most critical thing right now. It's not enough to show a product. You have to show how, how is that going to feel on my shelf at home? How is that going to work in my kitchen? How is that going to, what's that going to feel like when I use it every day? Um, And giving them a little bit of a sense of that, that's really going to trigger
1: that sale. Absolutely. So, What's next for for you and Harbor? Do you have a particular focus on 2021? We do. We've really been ramping up our sustainability initiatives because
0: we've found that environmental concerns are becoming hot. And we really feel that is going to be something that is uh, very important to retailers. It's already important at the product level. It's only a matter of time before it's important in the environment level at stores. So you're going to want your products to be sustainable soon. And shortly after that, you're going to want the shelving and the room that you put those things in to be sustainable as well. Um, So we've really gone around the world and found some very interesting materials, things made out of shark skin and fish scales and some that are uh, grown, can be actually grown in in a petri dish almost, that are very light, very affordable and extremely environmentally sensitive.
1: I'm thrilled to hear about the initiative in the sustainability arena. Most brands that are introducing new products, new businesses have that, you know, in the forefront of their minds. And I think any new initiative is concerned and wants to be as forward as they can be in doing that. And, you know, that includes from the manufacturing to the packaging that brands are using with their products and to know that there are solutions in the physical retail environment space is great news to me and something that I personally want to explore with you for my future activations. Well, that's wonderful news.
0: Yes. I, and I really feel uh, that is going to become a norm for solution providers, for brands and retailers across the board within the next year or two, especially with new government initiatives that are coming online. It's just... and. and People are speaking with their dollars. They're they're shopping with retailers that support their their sustainability initiatives. And right now, it seems to be just fairly close to the surface. Uh, this product is made from more sustainable materials. They uh, pay money into um, a carbon neutral fund. They use solar in their stores. Beginning efforts like that are great, but very soon, with especially with people's ability to get information on the Internet, they're going to be educating themselves about the deeper issues, such as um, I I guess Patagonia recently got into trouble a little bit because they've been very vocal about not wanting to use oil, uh, oil and gas products. And when an oil and gas company came to them wanting to buy Patagonia shirts that were embro- or jackets, I guess, that were embroidered to the Patagonia to, to their company logo. Patagonia said, no, we don't want our brand associated with your company. And uh, their customers went online, did some research and very quickly called Patagonia out on the fact that their staff travel around the country on airplanes. You're using a lot of oil and gas products. So you're not walking the talk. And I think that, that being held to accountability is become, going to become very prevalent. And so we're all going to have to think about the 360-degree impact to uh, the environment, such as shipping. Getting something delivered to your home uses a lot of gas. It clogs the roads. Think about a typical day in New York City if you're living in a neighborhood. How many delivery trucks are traveling up and down those roads, and how do they find parking, and how do they run in? I mean, it's a mess. And every time that happens, it uh burns, uh, you know, generate carbon into the environment. So it's just going to become something that we are going to have to think about things that we never thought about before. So thinking about the packaging, thinking about uh, the the afterlife of it, Uh, when I dispose of my packaging, where does it go? And
1: yeah, it's complicated. It's circular. I'm thinking, I was just thinking while you were talking about the fact that there really is less merchandise in stores than there used to be. We have smaller spaces. They may only be around for a shorter period of time. And so the demand for more direct shipping means that we can integrate more technology like kiosks for ordering. So it, it really is kind of a, a cycle. And I love what you said earlier about the benefits of um, picking up in stores, curbside pickup, all of those things. So I, I agree and I think that you know, we're here to support the brands in in the, these efforts as they go forward. And it sounds like you've got some wonderful solutions. So I'm really looking forward to working with you in the future. Yes. Thank you for spending some time with us today. I just wish you all the best this year. Thank you very much. And it's just been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Pop-Up Biz podcast, where something new is always popping. For guest ideas or to innovate your next pop-up, email me at susan at popupsummer.com. Also, head over to our social media channels on Facebook and Instagram at popupsummer. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Head over to your Apple podcast app Scroll through the episodes, click on five stars, and leave a review.